Well, it's kind of neat to know that our time here together, um, when I am able to throw these audios back up online, that there's people outside our congregation that actually hear it. Um, received a note from an industry friend this week who listened to our class on the Nicene Creed and was so complimentary and saying this, says I wish we could be in your church and he's in Colorado. So it's just kind of neat to know that what we do here goes beyond, even in a small way. Uh, How did you find it? How did you find it? I had been on an online conversation and someone had asked in that conversation, I hear that you teach Bible. And then I talked about it and gave the address. And then he went and looked it up. (laughs) It's like, that's pretty cool. Anyway, so we have Romans chapter one, verses eight through 15. And in our handout, you will notice I have actually done, formatted this a little differently so that the first paragraph is last week's lesson and the last paragraph is the lesson in two weeks when I return. We are having class here on the fourth, correct? Yes. Or fifth, actually, June 5th. Um, But then the middle section, uh, verses 8 through 15, I've got it double-spaced so you can take notes around it. Partly, The reason I did it this way is so that uh, when I gave the admonition that when you study Romans, you should not only focus on the verses in front of you, but also focus on the context around it. This gives you the visual. So if I have the opportunity to refer to something from last week, we can just look right up at the top of this. I almost said at the top of the screen. Um, (laughs) Wow, have I either devolved or evolved. I'm not quite sure which (laughs) by saying that. However, I do think it's important that we read this entire page together. And this time, let's all read it together, not just me, so that you are um, not only reading the words, but you're also uh, verbalizing them and they can take a deeper grounding. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his province in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in this gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will 
I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. Exactly. When you look at a passage, and we do this regularly, we will look at these verse, verses 8 through 15, and one question we like to ask is, what is Paul trying to convey? What is he trying to say? But I wonder if this particular paragraph is not as, mu- not as much of Paul conveying something as Paul revealing something. And the best way to notice this, the first seven verses that you see in verses 1 through 7 are not personal. He doesn't say, I, Paul. He just simply says, Paul. You do not see the word I anywhere in the first seven verses. But, while I'm erasing the board... I want you to count how many times the word I is used in verses 8 through 15. Whoever has the answer first can shout it out. How many times is the word my or mine used? (laughs) Nothing like making you read the passage over (laughs) and over and over again. (laughs) There's method to the madness. Five, exactly. So, you have very personal statements of Paul saying I or me or mine 16 times. You also have, and I'm not going to make you do it again, the word you or your is used 12 times. So in eight verses, or seven verses, sorry, verses 8 through 15, you have, what is it, 27 personal 
guess pronouns, whatever, however grammatical term you want to use. This is a relational statement of Paul himself talking to people he has yet to meet. I mean, think how pastoral this is. Think of how connected it is relationally. And I even wrote the comment, I said, we often look at Romans as a very theological work. And as such, we put it at arm's length. And we look at these vast and extraordinary doctrines of the scripture that are presented. But it is wrapped in the relational. There is a purpose behind what Paul is writing to these people. He cares about their soul so much that he wants to present the foundations of the gospel message and the theology of the scriptures to them. It would be very easy to eliminate verses 8 through 15. And my guess, this is going to sound weird, but it wouldn't necessarily be missed. If you think about what we normally look at the book of Romans. Most people in their study of Romans, they kind of go, yeah, 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 verses 1 through 15, yeah, 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 yeah. And then it comes to the good stuff in verse 16 and 17, which started the Protestant Reformation. So that's where we start with the book of Romans. Not realizing that Paul is talking to people. I look at this passage and I was thinking for a variety of ways of going through it and I came across Alva J. McLean's uh, commentary on Romans. It's a very good teachable uh, commentary because it's basically the notes that he used when he taught the class at uh, Grace Bible Seminary in Winona Lake. Um, these seven verses have seven characteristics of Paul unveiled for us. And we're going to go through them rapidly, so don't worry. We won't be here for the next three hours. Maybe. Um, but first, you find Paul's thanksgiving. That is in verse 8, where he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Now, <laughs> this is one of those fun moments in biblical scholarship. You have the word first, you do not have the word second, or third, or fourth. It's like he started with. I'm going to number my thoughts. And then he forgot that he was doing that when he, when he was presenting or writing the letter. It's just one of those, every commentator brings it up. It's really kind of funny. He says, he starts with first, but he, doggone it. We got no second. So we don't know if there's a ranking or it's obviously a verbal statement. You, don't, you can't read into it. 
because uh, often I'll find um, I have a, um, a, a talk that I give that are the five marks and I will invariably during the talk forget to number them so I'll start out okay and then I'm halfway through it and I'll say and now number four and I've got people raising their hands which one was number two like Oh, right, um, you know, flipping through my notes. I just forgot to say it. And they're trying to take, you know, rigorous notes. Yeah. But the word think, and we, you've heard this before, so I'm just reiterating, you've not seen it before, is the word Eucharisto. That means thanks. So when the Catholic Church presents the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, it is a supper of thanksgiving. Um, that just reminds me of a little trivia note. Uh, many, many, many decades ago when I was working in the Christian bookstore, I had someone bring back a Bible that they had purchased and they were very upset. And I said, I don't want a Catholic Bible. I looked at it. There's no Apocrypha in this Bible. It's not a Catholic Bible. But in the dictionary in the back, it had the word Eucharisto in it. And they said, I don't want no Catholic Bible that has a Eucharist in it. And I said, you do know that's a Greek word that just means thank you, right? I don't care. I just want a, I just want a, you know, a regular Christian Bible. It's like, okay. I'll make the customer happy, just get them out. Um, but it was, it was pretty wild. Um, but buried in this word, the word E-U means well or good. And what's this word right here? Grace. Grace. You caris. So to give thanks is to give good grace. We forget that. That embedded in a simple word, thanksgiving, has that underlying concept of grace and God's grace to us. This is why it's so critical to be having an attitude of thankfulness in all things, not just once a year in November, because it happens to be a day set aside for it. I'll admit that if we ever sing a Thanksgiving hymn on a week other than the Thanksgiving service, I'm completely thrown off going, why are we wasting it? You know, let's save it for that day because it's tradition. But I do think there is a theological subtlety in my own bad attitude when a song like that comes up now I, we thank we are god yeah, we're like we shouldn't be singing that now this is this is june and like uh, no it's actually a good idea to think about thankfulness all the time and paul starts it right away throughout paul's letters right after the hello he invariably presents some sort of thankfulness. He is, it's just how he thinks, it's how he writes. 
And in our narcissistic world, we usually don't say thank you unless we've been given something. And that's just the wrong attitude. It's the attitude of being thankful just that we can be here this morning. That we have enough health and wealth and ability to even be here today. That's a thank you. And the only person who did that is God. And that's where the thank you comes. So, anyway. He also thanks God through Jesus Christ for all Jew and Greek. Doesn't have Jew and Greek there, but the all is an inclusive all. And why? Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, there's a, again a lot of commentators like to say, oh, he's just using hyperbole when he says throughout the world. Yeah, I get that. He doesn't mean that the faith of the Roman church is being heard in Toronto. I don't even know if Toronto existed at this point. It, that's, you don't want to take it that literally. But in the Roman world, from Spain to Iraq, from Germany or the outer regions into mid-Africa, Rome was known. Is it possible that the work of the church in Rome had begun to, you know, disseminate? And there are people going, there's something going on there. That, that it, that's, of course, it's the hub, it's the capital, it's upon which everything is uh, centered in the known world. Tacitus, the Rome historian, wrote this. In the city of Rome flows all things vile and abominable and where they are also encouraged. And yet in this city, we have saints. That's in verse 7. Right above in that last paragraph, last sentence. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, to be holy, to be set apart. In this cesspool of culture, there are saints whose testimony went beyond its city limits. It was being talked about elsewhere. You know, there are certain, you know, in our American culture, it's a little hard. Uh, I don't like to draw the, the same comparison because it's a different culture and a different world. But there are certain churches that, are, that become very well known outside of the church itself. Usually now in our world it's because there's a mega pastor or a TV show or something of, other, something of that nature. Unfortunately, some churches are known for their notoriousness and not for their faithfulness. Or they're known because the pastor has just been put in jail or something of that nature. And of course the media loves that whenever that happens. Sometimes you have to wonder, 
you take a church like Camelback, a mid-sized church in however you determine the nature of size, are we known outside our limits? Maybe, maybe not, but it's a good question to ask. The Church of Rome certainly was known throughout the world. The second thing in this uh, list is in verse 9. And that's his service. Now it's interesting. I went to look up the word service in the Greek. And it says here, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Now, notice that it says, Whom I serve with my small s, spirit. This isn't talking about the Holy Spirit, capital S. Well, let's, we have to make sure we don't conflate the two ideas. It's the same Greek word pneuma, but it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit per se. The NIV, interestingly enough, translates it as whom I serve with my whole heart. Which I think is a mistranslation, actually, because I'm not sure heart and spirit are the same word, especially when you have the word pneuma there. Pneuma does not mean heart. Um, I'm not quite sure why the NIV did that, but they did. But it's the word serve. As God is my witness, whom I serve. That word serve can also be translated as worship. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, to God, which is your spiritual service. But in Romans, in the ESV, Romans 12, it's translated as your spiritual worship. Same word, translated differently in two different places. Throughout the um, Septuagint, throughout the Old Testament, whenever this the word serve is brought up, they use this word to describe the works of the priests, the service of the priests, and the purpose of the priestly service is worship. So you start seeing this interconnection between two ideas. So Lisa knows this is right after the sermon this morning because in Revelation uh, chapter 2 verse 19 it said I know your works, your love, your faith and service and patient endurance. And I wanted to make sure so I actually looked up the Greek. Yes, I was looking at my phone in church. Uh, but it was after the service. I waited until it was all done, so I'm, all, I'm safe. But I looked it up, and in Revelation, it's the word diakonia, which we normally think of as the deacon or the server, the service aspect of being in the church. Paul does not use diakonia here. 
he uses a word that has dual meaning. This almost a, a more weighty word of service or worship. And you could read that as saying, for, as God is my witness, who I worship with my spirit in the gospel of his son. You could actually read it that way. I do think the word service here is correct in our English uh, understanding because Paul is in service. He is working for the gospel. And one of the characteristics of Paul is his unwavering work on behalf of the gospel. But just realize that for him, I keep going back to the fact that Paul is very intentional in his language. He, he, He thinks about what word he is going to use when he has multiple choices. It's like the word doulos when we discussed it last week. He could have chosen any number of words to mean servant. But he chose the harshest, most dramatic word of actual slave. He had nine other words to use. And, you know, as someone who works in the world of writing and writing and publishing, I know authors who will struggle. They will sit there and stare at the screen for an hour for one word. Because they want just the right word to convey the meaning in their sentence. It's also why they get really, they can, and say all the time, they can get, uh, let's just say, uh, aggressive when you as an editor change that word. (laughs) They say, no, you will not change that word. I spent an hour of my life coming up with that, and that's exactly what I mean. It's like, oh, okay, sorry. Didn't realize that. Ooh, stepped on a landmine there. Um, but there is there is that truth of what Paul is doing. He specifically chose a word that has a priestly feel to it. next is Paul's prayer. Now, Paul's prayer. He says, without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So we've discussed when we were teaching First Thessalonians about the idea of praying unceasingly, pray at all times. It's the same word here. This word is only used four times in the entire New Testament. In Romans, right here about praying without ceasing but also in 1st Thessalonians 1 verse 2 2 verse 13 and 5 verse 17 so it's only here and in 1st Thessalonians he 
says, We give thanks to God all, always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. That's First Thessalonians 1 2. 2.13 We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And in 5.17 well, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Chronologically, Paul wrote Thessalonians before Romans. So the concept was already embedded in his thinking and in his teaching. Anytime we ever come up with this idea of you know, pray unceasingly, so, does this mean that you should walk around muttering under your breath? All the time, except when you're asleep? Is that what they're saying? I mean, there are those who teach that. There's even an Eastern Orthodox uh, teaching of a particular prayer that you're supposed to say over and over and over again in your head. Uh, and I'm not going to remember the formula, but it's like 10 words long. And you say it over and over and over again. And there's even a story of a particular monk who did this practice. And he travels the countryside, changing people's lives and changing people's, and changing communities because he is so uh, immersed in the idea of prayer at all times that wherever he goes, the Spirit of God ministers. So what does it mean? What do you folks think to pray unceasingly means? My question is, is he talking about praying unceasingly or is he talking about uh, you without ceasing? Praying it depends for you. on your English translation. It gets, it, the English translation Sometimes you'll have the word prayer before the unceasing. The ESV is one of the few that arranges the language so it kind of changes the subject. So that eliminates that possibility. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. In the Greek. Okay. Yeah. It does mean to pray unceasingly. Yeah. Well, what that guy was doing was like with a compass, uh, prayer seems to always reorient you to God, point to God, like the true north. And by praying constantly, then he was constantly reminding himself of God being there. And I think that's one way you can verbally do that, sure, but is I think the point of praying without ceasing is to constantly be looking to God in all things throughout your whole day, because um, it's very easy to get pointed at other things yeah. and yourself especially yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it might not I don't think it means literally out loud but that concept of yeah. always looking to God an attitude yeah. almost in that respect in, in all things at all times because again you can't just take one verse lift it out and create a doctrine of it so that's why you go to where other places that it's used especially in Thessalonians. He makes it really clear that this is an all-time 
a constant spiritual discipline of putting, I think your, your uh, illustration of the compass is very good, the idea of the true north, of reorienting where you need to be at all times. Yeah? Well, that's like pastor's hand first. Oh, building off of what Johanna said, I'm, I'm just thinking back to when we used to use dial-up for modems. Remember that? Uh-huh. And it was like, that's prayer and a very punctual thing, but now we all have Wi-Fi, so we don't have to go dial-up to check, to get in contact with this. It's just sort of always there, which could be a good thing or a bad thing. This could be a good thing, but we always have that. That's an interesting way of thinking. You brought technology into it. The idea that <laughs> Wi-Fi, it's always here. There's waves of Wi-Fi crossing through our bodies at this moment. <laughs> yeah, that's gross. Um, but there is that idea of constant connectedness. The difference is, is that we don't think about it. Whereas here, it's a awareness of it, the unique relationship that's ongoing at all times in all things. Uh, on the Thessalonians passage also is like the series that it comes in. So rejoice always. Uh-huh. You know, rejoice in God. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all things. It's almost those three kind of go together. Yeah. Um, and then he started here with thanksgiving and then goes very quickly to pray without ceasing. Yeah. It's just interesting to me how when you start comparing Paul's writings, how he... He never seems to repeat himself directly. He does, but he doesn't. He has a different way of saying the same thing so that it reinforces the idea. So if you have the Thessalonian letter in front of you, and now you have the Romans letter in front of you, and this particular thing jumps out, you're going to go, oh, wait, look at that. They actually, he's saying the same thing because he brings in thanksgiving. He also brings in the will of God here in verse 10. I mean, it's just the same idea that you find in Thessalonians. It's all kind of wrapped up. It's also personal. I pray without ceasing. I always mention you. It goes back to our change in this passage that it becomes very specific. I had one, one writer said, did Paul make lists for his prayer time? Because how in the world did he remember 26 names in chapter 16 of Romans? The writer said, I can't name 26 people in my own church, much less a church I've never been at. And I thought, okay, that's funny. You know, he was making, trying to make a point. But he mentions 26 people by name in chapter 16. From what we can tell, he may have only actually known a few of them directly. He knew of other ones, but it was very specific. I think one of the neat thing part, uh, parts about our prayer time here every, every week that we're together is we have people's names are mentioned. Unless, of course, the Voice of the Martyrs thing doesn't give a name. We can just talk in generalities. 
But most often, it's very specific. So there's that identity. He calls us by name, and we are asked to pray by name, personally. He's also very specific in his prayer. I always, in my prayers, constantly mention you asking that somehow, by God's will, I'll succeed in coming to you. He's, this has been upon his mind, on his prayer list, for decade, at least, if not longer. I really would like to go to Rome. I, I just, I, I, I need to go there. But even when the answer is no, he continues to pray. He doesn't give up. He doesn't say, okay, whatever. Um, it's this idea of a constant goal. It's also a submissive prayer in that it's by God's will, not by his will. As I wrote here, he could have ignored God's leading and gone anyway. Just buy a ticket. It's that simple. He could have, but he didn't. He did not feel the leading of God in his movements. Everything was by submission to God's will first, not his will. Why He may have been a stubborn ox who could really argue it, uh, you know, in, in the synagogue. He also was submissive to God's will and God's calling. Uh, I can say that that principle is one that I'm still trying to learn. There are times where I think this is the right thing to do, this is what I need to do, this is what I should do, and then you do it and you go, maybe I should have done that. That wasn't a good decision. 1 John 5.14 says, If we ask according to His will, He will hear us. I did an entire keynote speech on the will of God to a group of high schoolers a couple years ago. Well, we lost two years of our lives. So when I say a couple years ago, uh, it was somewhere before 2020. <laughs> um, but there was this approaching the topic and also thinking of the audience to speak for an hour on what does it mean to have to, to live according to God's will was a very interesting experience because what is the will of God how do we know it you know how do we know it when it's there how do we recognize it well it's also interesting he starts this entire thing in verse not at the end beginning of verse 9 that God is his witness that his motivations are correct he can stand before these people when he ultimately gets there and say God is my witness it's not me because he sees our heart and he sees our motivation Ray Pritchard has this great paragraph on prayer he says Prayer spans the miles that separates us. Prayer overcomes the misunderstandings that separate us. Prayer leaps across the bad memories that pull us apart. Prayer nullifies the estrangement that keeps us from speaking. 
There can be bitterness and anger between you, even years of alienation. But that doesn't matter when you pray because prayer bridges the gap between you and those you love. Your heart can touch their heart by the simple act of praying. What starts in your heart goes first to the Father's heart. And purified by the sunlight of His love, your prayer falls like an arrow in the heart of the one you love. Prayer can do that. It enables you to touch people you can't even speak to. If you love someone, you'll pray for them. If you don't love them, you'll stop praying eventually. Because when you pray, one of two things happens. You'll either start loving or you will stop praying. Very interesting thought. In verses 11 and 12, we have Paul's longing. There's been a couple paraphrases that are out there that uh, translate this sentence as that my heart aches to see you. And there is the uh, meaning in the Greek word, Greek word for longing, to yearn intensely. Second Timothy 1.4, Paul wrote to Timothy saying, I long to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. It's also a present tense in the Greek, which means it's ongoing. He didn't just do it once and now he's done. It's constant longing. And if we think about it, there has been at least 10 years, it may have been longer, since he had decided that he really needed to get to Rome and to minister to the church there. <clears throat> Came across this old adage that no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. But then there's this interesting little tidbit in the middle of the verse. Make sure I got it correct here. Yep. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Well, that's an odd expression. Spiritual gift. I'm gonna now I've had a chance to think about it and you're not just now getting the question um, what in the world is he talking about what spiritual gift is he talking about the spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 that's the phrase and we know chronologically he's already written 1 Corinthians. He even writes about the spiritual gifts in Romans, chapter 12. Is that what he's talking about here? Yeah? Is he answering uh, your question, verse 12? You're so good, Carl. Yes, he is, actually. He's not talking about the spiritual gifts here. Not the ones as we 
you know, create our charts and our lists, our lists, and our um, uh, how should I say, our lovely controversies between charismatic and non-charismatic, and all of that kind of stuff. You know, this is not the gift of tongues. Someone suggested that he's actually talking about the gift of salvation. Well, the problem is everyone he's talking to is already a Christian. And secondly, Paul isn't the one giving the gift of salvation. So that wouldn't work. Also, the spiritual gifts don't come from Paul. They come from God. So I want to impart to you some spiritual gift. That is, and the, the, the English translation here is actually very helpful, that we may mutually encourage each other by each other's faith, both yours and mine. As John MacArthur put it, he must have been using the term spiritual gift in its broadest sense, referring to any kind of divinely empowered spiritual benefit he could bring to the Roman church by preaching, teaching, exhorting, comforting, praying, guiding, and disciplining. Whatever particular blessing the apostle had in mind, they were not of the superficial, self-centered sort that many church members crave. He was not interested in tickling their ears or satisfying their religious curiosity. He was looking to say, when I come to you, I will be ministering to you and it will be mutually encouraging in all things spiritual. So we have to, again, when a verse like that pops up, because when I first read it, it's like, oh, he's talking about the spiritual gifts. Then you move on. And you start thinking about it going, but that wouldn't make sense. Isn't it kind of fun that you come to a passage like this and you really, really, really read it? And you have to stop and start asking questions, going, wait, that, that doesn't make sense. Well, yes, it does, if you apply the right definition to what he's meaning in the spiritual gift. To strengthen you, to mutually encourage each, other, each other's faith. You know, that's one thing about um, our virtual church experience that we all had for a year and a half where we could not meet in person. There were the attempts and the idea of maybe communicating via, via electronic means or whatever. But one of the power, powerful things of the church is the community. To be able to mutually encourage, to come alongside and saying, I care for you. I, I love you. Well, how is what's happening in your world? How can I pray for you best? Yeah, you can do that virtually, but it's not the same thing. We know that now. You can almost go, I can get away with it for a few months, maybe a few weeks, but permanently? I mean, this is a struggle that the universal church, the worldwide church is struggling with right now is getting people to come back who don't understand or have not had a true koinonia 
of fellowship. And uh, we can just, as a body, continue to pray that um, our outreach can be heard throughout all the world so that folks will come and experience the love of Christ in this way. Verse 13. It's not the best phrase here, but close enough. Paul's purpose. Verse 13. I don't want you to be unaware, but I have intended to come to you. And I have been prevented. But I've intended to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Well, again, we've got an interesting translation problem. Because... The Greek does not say reap some harvest. It's actually obtain some fruit. It's the Greek word for fruit, not harvest. I have no idea why. And is the RSV the same? Does it say harvest? Or does it say fruit? Because the ESV is an update of the RSV. Uh, yeah, so it's because it started with the RSV. Um, but it actually means fruit. And it's the same word we find in John 15, verse 16, where Jesus is speaking and praying to the disciples, for the disciples. You did not chose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. That's the same word. This idea, his purpose is not just singular. It's not just for himself. But it's to get to Rome. And yeah, he's tried and God has redirected him multiple times. And I think we only know of two. But who knows how many times he felt thwarted from his attempt to get all the way to Rome. Steve, in the, the cross-reference for that verse, when it says harvest, it takes you to Philippians 4.17, where it does say fruit. Yeah. And Isn't that odd? Yeah, I don't know, again, I don't know why they chose the word harvest, because that has a different connotation. Yes, you harvest fruit. Okay, I get it. You know, it's like six of one, half a dozen of the other. No pun intended. Um, but when you're reaping fruit, that there's a benefit to that, and it's a spiritual benefit because he's already written Galatians about the fruit of the spirit. Same word. Same word again. We next have his or better word is indebtedness. Now the ESV has the word obligation. I have an obligation. I am under obligation to both Greek and to barbarian. The King James has the word I am under debt or I'm a debtor. It could mean that. Uh, The Greek word there literally means debt. 
but it also figuratively means a moral obligation, which is why we have it translated here, because it's not like he said, I borrowed money from you guys and I'm trying to bring it back. He's not saying that. He's talking about a moral obligation. But he says, I have a obligation both to Greeks and barbarians. Okay. This is another one of those times where you stop and go, what is he talking about? I have an obligation? What obligation? What is Paul thinking when he's using a word that means debt, a debt that needs to be repaid, or an obligation, a moral obligation to fulfill? And then he says it's an obligation to Greeks and barbarians, to wise and foolish. And there's no Jews in there. So now we have a conundrum. What is Paul talking about? Anybody? Let's solve the grand mystery of all time. <laughs> but back in verse 8 he says, their faith is proclaimed in all the world. Right. So the Greeks would be outside, you know, Greek and Roman, two different competing cultures, the Greek, and then barbarians, I was heard those like peoples to the north, who, you know, first heard them speak, they sounded like blah, 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 so they called them barbarians. I don't right. know if that's accurate, that's what I heard I'm back in college one time. Right. Jeff, correct me, but I think so, okay. Because then he goes wise, but it's almost like he's, he's emphasizing if you've never heard German, if you've never, yeah, if you've never heard German before, it sounds. I mean, it's just gruff, in just how it's translated, and that's the northern people. Um, I will say that Roman culture and Greek culture now have pretty much blended it. So much so, all they did is rename the gods and then kept the temples. It was a lot easier than to turn the, bear the temple down and rebuild it. They just put a new name for it, and then they were fine. <clears throat> so they had assimilated Greek culture. Yes, the Greek culture is civilized, sophisticated, wise. That's why you have wise and foolish. The barbarians, the Greek, which is the Greek word barbados, or barbados, uh, barbados, is the speech is rude, harsh, rough, uneducated, uncultured, no Greek language, no Greek culture, anyone who is a non-Greek speaker. So he's basically saying, I am obligated to the entire world. Obligated for what? Think about prior to the Damascus Road. He was obligated to kill them all. This was his obligation. He felt called to rid the world of this virus called Christians. He now is one. His obligation is now, as Lisa put it, is to Christ. And the idea is to present the gospel to absolutely everyone. 
He's bringing in barbarians? Can you imagine the Roman church going, uh-uh, no, no, not Charlie. <laughs> or, you know, not Jezebel. <laughs> Can't bring her in here. I mean, she's unredeemable. Um, in, 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 so, wow. Because they were at war with the barbarians. Constantly. There was always this threat, even in this era, of that encroaching group of, of those in the north. They had conquered Gaul, the, the French. They're easy. Uh, <laughs> they, they, got the, they got the French. They're trying to get, and they have some, some foothold in, in the UK. But the Germanic and the Nordic areas, it was tougher. Primarily because of weather. It, they really were not able to sustain long campaigns. It wasn't until Marcus Aurelius that they technically conquered the entire world as they, as they saw it. And it took him, I think it was 35 years of campaigns uh, before he was actually able to, and that's 100, 200 years after this. So the fact that you have Paul saying, I'm under obligation, I have a debt to the barbarians? Yeah, he wasn't kidding. Came across this beautiful quote from William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, for those of you who know the name, uh, don't re quite remember. He was the main, uh, let's just say, power or thrust behind the anti-slavery movement in Britain, and helped get it to be declared illegal in Britain before it was illegal in the U.S. So it's before the Civil War, and he was under a lot of pressure. Um, it, was a, it was a very dramatic uh, events. He also wrote a book that has been titled uh, now called Real Christianity. And in that book, he wrote this. There was, among the nations of antiquity, one system for the learned and another for the illiterate. As an opposite mode of procedure belongs to true Christianity, without distinction, it professes an equal regard for all human beings, and its message is characterized as glad tidings to the poor. Paul owed the gospel to every member of the human race. At one point in his life, Paul felt an obligation to per persecute every Christian, which I mentioned earlier. And now, Paul felt an obligation to preach to every creature. What obligation or gospel duty do you have? Those who are recipients of God's good news feel burdened and obligated to pass it on to others. If you are a medical researcher and discovered a cure for cancer, would you keep it a secret? Life is short, death is sure, sin is the cause, and Christ is the cure. Wow is right. Life is short, death is sure, sin is the cause, Christ is the cure. We have the good news. And this ties right into the last point. And that's verse 15. His 
readiness. Now our translation has it as, I am eager. The King James actually has the word, I am ready. So that's where I came up with it. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he's been preaching to the Greeks and the barbarians. Now I want to preach, and I am eager to do so, to preach to you. It is a Greek word, prothumos, P-R-O-T-H-U-M-O-S. Prothumos, meaning ready, willing, and able. It is used in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14, it's the only other places it's used, where it says the, fret, the flesh is prothumos. I'm sorry. The spirit is prothumos, the flesh is weak. So the spirit was ready and willing and able, but the flesh was weak and the disciples fell asleep. Here he's saying, I am eager. I mean, I'm ready? Well, no, not today. I'm, I need a nap. I'm tired. Are you willing? Uh, I, I suppose, if I have to. Are you able? Well, no, I have no skills. God can't use me. No one listens to me anyway. And Paul is trying to say to these people, look, I am ready, willing, and able to do anything on behalf of the gospel. When Jesus is the light of the world, and he is in us, we become that flame that lights the darkness wherever we go. And if you say, I have no skill, I have nothing, well, at least you can be a light. You can be the person who's really nice to that checkout lady who's having a really bad day. And you can bring some light to that person. We don't have to be Paul and completely transform the world. We don't have to be a Martin Luther. I mean, who, who says we can't? But we can make a difference in every situation if we are ready, willing, and able. And Paul was. He brought thanksgiving, Worship, service, prayer, constant service, constant prayer. He was longing for other opportunities. He had a purpose to change people's lives and have mutual encouragement. And he felt an obligation and he was ready to do it. Pretty amazing for seven verses that we tend to skip over or speed read until we get to 16 through 32 which is, are the verses that everyone talks about when they talk about Romans and that's where we are today so let's pray Lord thank you for our time for the again the amazing opportunity to get out our proverbial shovels and dig and then to turn it over and, and say, okay, God, what, what are you asking me? What are you trying to tell me here? 
Because your word is so powerful, even in the smallest places and parts that speak to us clearly, if all we are is willing to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.